You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Guys, we're in uh, Galatians series. I'm so excited. I think this is week week three of Galatians, um, and it's just been great. It's been good to be rooted in a context, in a scriptural book, um, in something that was written to a very specific people group, uh, but obviously we get to glean from it because it was included in God's Word. Um, So uh, just a reminder, we're going to recap a little bit and then kind of get into the passage today. So remember, Paul is writing this letter to a group of churches in this area called Galatia. Okay, it's not just to one specific church, but it's a whole area. I'm going to show you a map in a little bit. Re-encouraging them because he was part of planting a lot of these churches to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. Okay, don't go off teaching on your own stuff. Don't take that concept and then make it your own, but stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel allows for freedom from being under the law for the Jewish people and freedom to be fully included into the family of God for the Gentiles. Okay, so it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word of unification here. This creates a multi-ethnic, diverse church unified in the lifestyle and teachings of Jesus Christ. The reason for the letter is encouragement, but it's also in response to misinformation that's happening due to some of the Jewish leaders. Some of the Jewish leaders believe that regardless of belief in Jesus as the Son of God, Gentiles who wanted to be part of God's family needed to adopt Jewish customs and follow their ways. Jews for a lot of our scripture, were the picture of God's family. So if someone were to come into God's family, they would need to look like the Jewish people. Okay, it kind of makes sense logically, right? Another interesting aspect is happening here. This struck me this week as I was looking at this passage. If you read your scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, throughout the history of the Israelite people, there are multiple times when the people are captured or exiled into a different nation, right? Another nation will come in, kind of take over, take the people back to their nation. And what happens, oftentimes, those different nations and their leaders had a goal of basically stripping down the Israelites from away from their identity by destroying everything they have and remaking them into the culture that they were exiled into, so assimilating them into who they were. So Egypt and Babylon, if these are sparking some ideas, are big examples of this, uh, probably the greatest examples in our scriptures. Uh, Egypt, remember, enslaved the Israelite people, so they were indoctrinated into their ways. They still allowed a little bit for them to have their own faith, but they had to live under Egypt's rule and law and religion. Then Babylonians, years later, they really tried to strip the Jews of everything and to bow down to their idols. If you remember Daniel, they wanted them to worship the golden statue. They'd even throw them in the fiery furnace if they didn't. You can go read that story. And in all these circumstances, even though it looked bad, God... Our scriptures are full of stories where God sovereignly protected and kept a remnant to himself who were faithful among those people who would eventually be then the saving grace of the people. So when we're reading this account of Galatians, keep this in mind. Paul has taken the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations, teaching them of the salvation by grace that we may now receive and be welcomed into the family of God. This should be really good news, and it was for the Gentiles. But then he also says, now in the gospel of Jesus, you don't need to follow the laws anymore in order to be the people of God. 
but rather follow basic Christian principles as were taught and modeled by Jesus and faith in Jesus, passed down through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, commissioned to bring those principles to the world. So two interesting things are happening. One, some Jewish leaders are acting much like their own history, except they're the ones trying to assimilate the Gentiles to their ways. And two, the Jewish people are learning how to have a new identity that is not wrapped up in the law anymore, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Who are we as a people if we don't have our practices and our law? So you can understand it's a weird time for everyone. We're reading about a specific time, a weird time. Weird for the Jews to hear something different than they've heard before. Weird for the Gentiles who want to follow God to hear from some leaders that they have to be under the law, and then from other people, no, you're freed from the law, right? So Paul is trying to establish with these churches that this way of Jesus, which is faith by grace, not by following the law, is not just some gospel that he made up or came from any other man, but that this is actually the gospel that the Jews have been waiting for, and the Gentiles can now freely receive. And this gospel is trustworthy because the testimony of its power and fruit, especially in Paul's life. So Paul, if you remember last week, Paul has been telling his testimony. He's been saying how God worked in and through his life. Now he's going to transition a little bit from showing that he's not a brainwashed kind of puppet from the Jerusalem council or the apostles, but despite being separately trained, and raised up in the way of Jesus, he is completely in line and unified in the gospel message with the apostles. His message is not different. There's not two different gospels here. It's the same message, but he's showing that because they were separate in their ministries, him and the Jerusalem apostles, but they have the same message that there must be a great unifier in Jesus himself. So let me pray real quick, and we're going to get into him continuing in his story and his testimony. Um, Let me pray, and let's get into it. God, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that this is truth. Um, I pray for encouragement today. I just pray that as we can learn some historical stuff, God, we're just ultimately learning more about you, who you are, your character, uh, because we just are in love with you, and we want to worship you today. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray in your name. Amen. All right. So chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes in his letter, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. If you remember last week, we talked about how Paul had this conversion experience. He went on for a few days into Damascus, but then for three years, he kind of just disappeared. Remember that? Kind of just disappeared. And then he came to Jerusalem, tried to connect with some of the apostles, and apparently there wasn't much there, and he only really connected with James. You can go read that in chapter 1. And then he was gone again and returned another 14 years. So scholars don't know if that three years is included in that 14 or this is three years after. But this is his second visit back to um, Jerusalem. So that 14 years, scholars call the lost years of Paul. Okay, we know from chapter 1 that he went back to his hometown in Cilicia and Syria because he just told us where. And I'm going to throw a map up here. So I, I thought it's hard to talk about all these places if you can throw it up, Jeff. Um, if it works, if it doesn't, you guys memorized the map of ancient Near East, didn't you? Not there? It's all right. If you find it, great. 
But if you go look at it, you can even Google it. You all have phones. You can Google uh, just kind of Paul's uh, missionary journey is something you can type in. Um, Paul's letter in Galatians map, that kind of thing. And you'll see it's weird on a map because when we see a map, everything is, is, you know, flat right there, right? And Jerusalem, trying to be accurate, Jerusalem is like down here in the corner. And then it'll go up to like this area called Galatia. Okay, and then in Galatia is where you see all these different churches and stuff. What's funny, and when we look in the map, uh, geographically, so when you're in Jerusalem, it'll say they went down to Galatia, which is really confusing because <clears throat> it's a higher elevation point, but on our map, it looks like up and down. Oh, there it is. Perfect. All right, so as you, can, as you guys can see, it'll say like Jerusalem, and then we went down to Antioch. Do you see that? So it's confusing because obviously for us, we're like, oh, you went north. All right, but I thought it was helpful to see, so you can see where a lot of these letters um, and a lot of these places were written. So he wrote Corinthians to the Corinth people, Ephesians to the Ephesus. And you can see Galatia is a giant area, right? It's a Roman province, but it is like, it is encompassing a ton of that place. So that was really helpful to have that mentality. But Cilicia, he told us in chapter one, Cilicia and kind of Tarsus right there in Syria, that is where he is actually from. So they believe for about 14 years he was doing ministry in that area, okay? So if that's helpful, great. If it's not, just wasted your time. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul says that he has been preaching what he considered the gospel, not just a gospel to the Gentiles, but the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet here he's kind of hearing a different one that has been preached. So he wants to get right in the thick of things. And I I feel like almost tongue in cheek saying like, I want to make sure I'm not running in vain. Let's make sure we're on the same page here. Okay. The goal, especially in Paul's letters, is for a unified church, one body, Okay, not a Jewish church and a Gentile church, right? Both of those to Paul, that's only half the church. One unified church in Jesus Christ. And at least two of the major stumbling blocks for the Jewish leaders with the Gentiles were these two big areas of they were uncircumcised and they ate non-kosher food. By the time Paul is writing this letter, the circumcised, and if you don't know what it means, you can call your parents, talk to them, Paul is writing this letter, the circumcised and the Jewish people were virtually synonymous. That's what it meant. If you were circumcised, you were a Jewish person. That's just how it came together. And the Jewish people up until this very point have always been under the law of Moses. Okay, why was this such a big deal? Why was circumcision such a big deal? The law of Moses made it law, but it actually goes all the way back to a covenantal promise with Abraham and God. So real quick, Genesis 17 Verse 9, God just, it, God just made this covenant promise with Abraham that there'd be a great nation. He'd be the father of it. He's going to work through them. 17.9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This was the primary sign that these were the people of God. Okay, this has to be, this has been done for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries leading up to the letter 
2, Galatians, even Jesus, you can go read in Luke 2, eight days after he was born, followed under this practice. So throughout the Old Testament, we constantly see this divide that has been made between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, or what's said a lot is the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, that is that has been the division forever. So it honestly makes sense that as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and brought now to the Gentiles, both the Gentiles and the Jews would be a bit confused on what this new identity in Christ looks like. So does it look like Jewish life? Does it look like Gentile life? What is this thing? And this is what Paul is looking to address here. So this is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. He actually brings with him a Greek uncircumcised Gentile in Titus, okay, which is kind of a bold move. So Galatians 2, 3 says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is actually kind of a big deal. To prove a point here, Titus, a full-fledged uncircumcised Greek, was considered a believer by the Jerusalem apostles. He was not forced to be circumcised in order to believe. And Paul writes this in his letter to encourage them that even though there was, there was pressure them on the Gentiles to now be circumcised according to Jewish law, this was not deemed necessary by Paul nor the Jerusalem leaders. Paul, in fact, calls this false teaching out, verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So again, remember, Paul is writing this letter to the various churches in Galatia who are dealing with this very issue. He calls them false brothers. He says they've infiltrated the church and trying to bring them back to slavery, which in his language means bringing them back to being under the law. But that nullifies what Christ did. Christ fulfilled and freed the people from having to be under the law, as he now is the means for justification. So to go back to the practice is up to the, to the individual, but it's not no longer necessary for inclusion into God's family. There's no longer anything you had to do to be made right with God. That justification or made rightness was found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul continues about these false brothers. And from those who seem to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I like his little, little things he puts in there. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. These false brothers were very influential. Paul sees it as false teaching. False, Paul sees it there, but they were because, in part because they were likely not thinking they were false brothers, but actually staying true to what they believed. This is what God told the Jewish people to do. Jesus Christ had a massive like ministry, and this was huge, but this is still who we are. So they didn't necessarily think they were talking heresy. They thought they were staying true to who they believed they were. So these leaders, they were trying to preserve the traditions of the law as the primary expression of being a child of God. And the practices in themselves aren't bad, but if it's done as means of justification, it overlooks and negates the work of Jesus on the cross. If at best it makes Jesus a martyred prophet for the faith, not the Son of Man who came to take away the sins of the world. So Paul, he's unfazed 
by these influence because his goal is that continuing the work of Christ, not man. Remember back in chapter 1, I think it's worth restating, 1 verse 10. It says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul continues, uh, chapter 2 verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, so Gentiles and Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, who is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me that gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So instead of being influenced by these false brothers, Paul is saying the gospel was untouched by these heresies. But just like Peter, who the Galatian church would have known about, was given the gospel to carry to the Jews, I, he, Paul, was given the same charge and the same authority by Jesus himself to bring that same good news to the Gentiles. So he names the Jerusalem apostles by name, James, Peter, who is Cephas, and John as these perceived pillars of the way of Jesus. Okay, this is what the church has kind of been built on. These are the, these are the guys, right? And when they heard and learned what was happening among the Gentiles who were coming to faith and were desiring to follow God, they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to not only continue in what they were doing, but to give them the right hand of fellowship. Okay, if you ever heard that phrase before, it's like an ancient way of being like, they gave us the approval to continue to do this. This, is, this signified acceptance, trust, unity in message. This is a cool moment for Paul to be referencing, though they were given different missions, totally different people groups, to different people groups, it was the same message of salvation, the same gospel in Jesus Christ. And of course, the mark of Christianity isn't, since its inception has been always to care for the poor, has always been to care for the needy. I, this, this was a non-negotiable, no matter what theological debates were at the time. In fact, you can go read this on your own time, but in Acts 11, there was a great famine in the land, actually. And there, it was huge, and people were starving. It was, and the churches actually came together and got supplies, and Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas were actually a part of a team that would bring supplies to the people to help out. It's, it's pretty, pretty rad. So, however, here in the letter, we get a little bit of a turn. Paul just named these pillars of the Christian faith, and he's trying to be positive, and he's like, hey, we're all in the same message. They had a mission, we had a mission, but it's the same gospel. It's so great. He named these, but now he's about to call one of them out. Okay, and naming Peter as an example of someone who got caught up compromising for man's agenda, not God's. So verse 11, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Oh boy. Here we go. So remember, Paul, he's been risking his life. He's going out into the Gentile regions, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jews and the Gentiles, risking his life. Remember the stoning that happened to him? We read in Acts while he's preaching this, right? But now he brings up how he runs into the esteemed apostle in Antioch, and now Peter has some splaining to do. So verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter had received the same gospel as Paul and been taught and personally discipled by Jesus himself. Peter knew the freedom they had received in the gospel of Jesus from the law, and he preached the same gospel. So the head knowledge was there. But unfortunately, with Peter specifically, this is not the first time that even though the head knowledge was there, social and cultural pressure got to him. I could say a couple of examples, but let's say the biggest one. Do you remember when Jesus was captured? When he was taken into custody, he was put in the middle of the town square and he was flogged brutally and publicly. Peter was a little bit way off, a little way off. And then like this super intimidating middle school age girl cornered him, pointed at him, was like, you're one of his followers, aren't you? Do you remember Peter's reply? He knew it. He said, but verses later, you are the Christ, the son of God. And what does he say now? I do not know the man. Well, years later, Peter is given into social and cultural pressure once again. He's sitting, eating with Gentiles, eating their food, drinking their wine, out of the freedom they now both share in the unity of Christ, and then the Jewish leaders walk into the cafeteria or wherever they are. It's like the varsity basketball team like watches in and their point guards with the JV. You know, it's like, what are you doing? Right? It's like the plot to every teen drama movie where the cool kids walk in and Peter is with the nerds and they start a food fight and whatever. The plot line in those movies is way more biblical than you ever thought, huh? So Peter, a pillar leader, as Paul called him in the early Christian movement, now knew what the gospel was, had performed miracles in Jesus' name, had been an integral part of forming the New Testament church in Jerusalem, yet again gave in to social and cultural pressure. Peter travels down to Jerusalem to visit the church in Antioch and begins to encourage the Jews and Gentiles there by eating with everyone, regardless of ethnicity. This would have been quite the scene and encouraging. Can you imagine? Like This would have been so encouraging, especially for the Gentiles. However, some from Jerusalem, and when it says from James, these are kind of like the top influential Jerusalem leaders, most likely from the ones who argue for circumcision as still a sign, as a core to belief, came to join in the encouragement, but they were shocked to walk into the Antioch church and see the esteemed Peter eating non-kosher food, drinking Gentile wine, and looking very much like a Gentile. Now, it's one thing to get caught like that, but then stand up and give this like impassionate sermon and defend the faith and defend your newfound buddies. But unfortunately, Peter does something worse here. He leaves his new friends. He resides to slip back into his Jewish roots. And he, what did it say, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Like what a brutal but very familiar scene. Peter once again saying, I do not know them. I'm not associated with this. See, the scandal for the Jews wasn't that he stopped stopped eating, but that he had started eating with uncircumcised Gentiles in the first place. Even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand ministry partner, was influenced by Peter and the rest of the Jews and started to re-separate what God had brought together under grace. 
But as we're learning as well, and Paul is teaching, this right here is antithetical to the gospel message. This right here was rather disastrous for early church unity. Things were unraveling, and Paul knew he needed to step in quick and publicly. And because Peter did this on a public display, Paul sees fit to call Peter out publicly. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul doesn't see this as an isolated incident, but a hypocrisy against the gospel itself. If the gospel in Jesus Christ makes room for now non-Jewish Christians, then why are we again going back to separating because these non-Jews act differently? Right? That diversity, instead of being like have a, a wall in there, should be celebrated in Christ. Instead, Peter was saying, as a Jew, he now had the freedom to now eat unceremoniously if he wanted to. However, if he had to, he could backtrack to his safer Jewish roots, showing that in the end, there was still this wall built between Jews and Gentiles. And ultimately, if Gentiles wanted to be accepted, then they would still need to look like Jews. Do you see how this is actually antithetical to the gospel? And we're right back to the same old argument. And again, the same old human problem we mentioned in the beginning of some majority forcing the minority or perceived lesser to assimilate to them. Okay, this is like repeating their own history back to them. Now, as we're reading this, always remember and keep in mind, Peter is not Jesus. Paul is not Jesus. These are flawed men we are reading about. Remember, Paul is writing what happened in his story to the churches of Galatia to show and prove that Paul is not a self-appointed apostle or brainwashed puppet for the Jerusalem apostles, but Paul is bringing up some huge foundational truths of the gospel. In Christ Jesus, there is no majority or minority. In this new faith family, there is equality in worth and status because there's one central object of worship. And it's not a people group, it is God in Jesus Christ. See, the key is that the gospel should be the complete gospel message to the circumcised and to the uncircumcised. The message should not change based on the lifestyle there. It is the gospel to the Jew and the Gentile, not two different gospels. And in order for both parties to accept these truths, there is the need for surrender. The Jewish leaders needed to surrender their need for the law to be justified. The Gentiles needed to surrender their worldly ways and now live for God. Surrender, not in a giving up kind of way, but a surrendering to Jesus Christ as the Lord of this new creation church people. Because now, for the sign of this identity, there's no circumcision of the flesh needed anymore, but the scriptures call it circumcision of the heart. Later, Paul would write this incredible letter, not just to an area like Galatia, but to all of the churches in Rome, called Romans, like all the whole areas, any Roman province, anywhere. And he would double down on this point. I just want to read you a passage, Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, which means the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
That's fascinating. So a new covenant that is made on the inside in faith and belief, right? Paul is really going to get into this external versus internal faith and what it looks like next week, and I'm really excited for that. There's some powerful passages next week. But for us today in our church, I think it's, this passage is very relatable. You got, we can all agree there are social and cultural pressures all around us that are telling us to think a certain way, to change doctrine so it's less offensive, to throw out God's great history of his faithfulness and just focus on modern day issues and etc. We could do a huge list here. But listen, throughout church history, as we're reading this and learning about the church in Galatia, there has never or very rarely been a time when the big C church, all of church, was completely unified over every issue. The church is as diverse as people, and people are the reason for issues. So the issues are diverse. God did not come to solve every issue. God in Jesus came to save a people, a people who would surrender to him under the banner of Jesus Christ as Lord and watch him unify his church under him, of people who would then sit under the scriptures, allow the spirit to speak loudly in their lives and to trust the actual mission that God gave his people, the mission not to solve everything, but to work towards the reconciliation of all things. We talked last week about our stories, right? We all have different and unique stories. And if you're in Christ, then at some point you were reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ. So as we've been reconciled back to God, he is working now through us to reconcile all things. So it's in the freedom of surrender that we get to worship our God and the work he is doing. Not because we all look the same or act the same, but because now God's great diverse church is striving to be one in unity. The goal is and always has been one unified church body. So Hub City, how are we doing with that here? Like we're not in charge of every church in Albany, but we are here and we're together. How are we working towards being one united body in Christ? How are we making sure the gospel that we are preaching, not even just here, hopefully I'm just encouraging, but the gospel preaching to ourselves every day through God's word isn't just tailored just to us and what we want and creating our own echo chambers of our own biases and our own desires. But the gospel we preach and believe in is also the same gospel that those we don't agree with could preach and believe in, right? We might not be fighting over circumcision anymore, but there is still very much tension in how you express worship of God, what spiritual practices are necessary versus preference, what church looks like. Again, the list can go on. There's thousands and thousands of denominations that are considered the Christian church. And I see a positive for diversity there, but fairly a negative in unification there. But for, all, for us, what we can do is it can center in Jesus Christ. When it used to be that someone could walk around and it was their circumcision that apparently you could literally or figuratively point out as, they, as, as the God that they belong to, Jesus then shows up and says it's circumcision of the heart that matters, and then what gets pointed out is this. What did he tell his disciples? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Not just treat others with kindness, but love like Jesus loved. Self-sacrificially, unconditionally. This is now the sign of your allegiance. And to this goal of being a unified people, we believe in the massively important role of the Spirit, as Paul writes. Self-sacrificial and unconditional love is hard to do as humans. Do you agree? That's tough. It takes something outside of us. It takes that circumcision of the heart, and that circumcision of the heart does not happen without an intervention from God himself inside us, and that we believe is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the internal sign of covenant, and then how we love others is the external evidence of that covenant that we have been in. The Spirit is a guarantor of our faith. And more than that, the great unifying glue that works in and through all of God's people, gathering his church into one body that he is the head of. So our belief is that surrender to Jesus as Lord, staying true to the scriptures, relying on the spirit of God to guide us and keep us in his ways, and then being intentional about loving one another well, will shape us to be the kind of people God reconciled us to be and be in step with that one gospel that Paul is preaching here. And that's why we can all worship our God today, because we are without excuse in all that he has lavished upon us. So we want to be unified in our surrender and our worship to our good God today. Amen?